Good evening, y'all. How are you today? Wasn't it a lovely day today? Is this like the first sunshine you've had in a while? No. <laughs> I'm actually from the Northwest. I grew up in Woodland, Washington. So I, I live in the great nation of Texas now, but I grew up in Woodland, Washington. And so it's nice to be home. Can I just say that? As the plane was landing in Portland, I'm like, I'm, I'm home. <laughs> so I am just delighted that you're here. And I have so much for you tonight and the next couple nights that all the talks are going to build on one another. And, but you can come any night and it'll make sense to you. Just a couple logistical things. Um, you'll notice the church is darkened because I have a PowerPoint presentation for you that's going to feature some quotes and some beautiful art and things like that. So uh, any quote that you can't read, I have made the text as large as possible, but I will read each quote, so don't worry if you can't read it from the very back. I'll read it to you. So you might just want to move a little bit. If you can't see um, the images, you might want to move a little bit to where you can see the full screen, especially uh, the quotes, and uh, we'll be on our way. Um, I was talking to the teens last night. I was at the youth group last night, and I'm sure you've had this experience too. Have you ever had the experience where you are physically someplace, but your mind is a million miles away? You're physically, you might be physically here tonight, but you're thinking, did I shut the front door? Did my kids' socks? I never found that sock. You know, you're like thinking in your mind of all the things, right, that we have to do. And it's very easy, I think, especially in our lives today, when we have technology and all the things that make it so full and so busy, it's so difficult at times just to be present. And I just want to invite you tonight, my dear friends, you don't have to do anything but receive what God wants to give you. So I just want to invite you just to be present this evening. And um, one of the things that I often do when I speak is that I, I know that the most important thing that you're going to hear tonight, um, we've got a lot of beautiful things for you tonight, but the most important thing that you're going to hear tonight is not what I'm going to say. I know very well that the most important thing that you're going to hear tonight is what the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you. And God will speak to every single one of you. Every single one of you. He will speak a word. He'll speak an image. He will put something in your heart because he loves you. And especially in this Advent season, this new year where these new graces are coming, new possibilities, this Advent doesn't have to be like last Advent. And I don't know what happened to your family at Thanksgiving, but Christmas doesn't have to be another Christmas where half the family does not talk to the other half of the family, right? And sometimes the only difference in the whole family is you. That's it. So God has profound graces for each one of us over the next few days, and I'm just absolutely delighted that you're here to receive, and that's all you have to do. Just open your heart and receive whatever he wishes to give you. So I'm just going to ask you to settle in. If you have something in your hands, just for now, I'm going to have you put it down, okay? And so I just want to invite you, just, I'm going to start with some moments of silence, and it's very good when we embark on a season or we embark on something new to bring to God something that we have a desire for. And I don't know what your desire is for Advent, and maybe you haven't even thought about it, and if you haven't, that's okay too. But tonight while you're here, what is the one thing that you want to bring to the Lord this evening? What is that one thing? And maybe it's something, it's very beautiful. I, I follow Bishop Robert Barron on Twitter, and um, he, he, he sends out daily reflections on the gospel. And yesterday he was speaking about the Advent season, and he said, if, this is great, I put it on Twitter. He said, if you could just put out, put out one thing, is there something in your life that you're worried about? A dilemma in your life that you've been trying to resolve for a long time, the thing you've been praying about for a long time, or something that you've been worrying about, trying to fix it, running away from, trying to get God to do what you want him to do, which I'm sure you've never done, because I've never done that either. But something in your life, right? He said, All, could you, he said, could you just do this? Could you just bring that one thing to the Lord for Advent? And say very honestly to the Lord, Lord, I've been trying to fix this myself. I've been trying to fix my husband, fix my kids, fix my work, fix everybody else. What is that one thing? And this season of Advent, Lord, I'm going to give this to you. 
And he said, watch very attentively throughout the Advent season of how God will minister to you in that very, very issue that you brought forward. So it's up to you. What would you like to bring to him this evening as we begin? So I'm going to, I have some things too. I've got one thing too. So um, let's start off with some moments of silence. And then I would just like to invite you, if you, you can close your eyes if you want to, but you don't have to. Just to bring to the Lord that one thing. And I would invite you, as I always do, to be very honest. Please be very honest. God already knows what it is anyway, so let's be very honest. And I'll make more of a formal prayer, and then we will be on our way this evening. Okay, here we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this evening as your sons and daughters in this brand new year of grace that you give us. And I ask you, Father, as a father of hope, that you would instill new hope in our hearts, that you are the one who loves us and that you know us to the depths of our being. I pray, Lord, that you would bring us on a beautiful path this Advent. I ask you, Jesus, as you come to us as a child, so vulnerable, so little this Advent season, that you would give us the courage to be humble, to be open and receptive to your little ones, to be open and receptive to you, that our hearts would be open to receive you. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, you as the Lord and giver of life, I pray that you would breathe upon us tonight, breathe new life into each one of us, And I ask that you would breathe new life into places that we think are dead, that we think are beyond hope. I ask you, Holy Spirit, at this very moment, that you would breathe new life in us. Melt anything frozen in our hearts. Warm anything that is chill and set us on fire with your love. And Mother Mary, as this is your beautiful season, Mama, you who are with child, you who are about to give birth to the Savior of the world, we turn to you. And we entrust that one thing in our hearts to your son through your beautiful and immaculate heart. And we entrust our time here this evening. We entrust our entire Advent season and every single person we hold, most dear mother, as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I travel extensively across the nation giving talks and retreats to a variety of audiences. And so consequently, I spend a lot of time in public, but I spend a lot of time in airports, okay? I spend a lot of time just in places. And can I just tell you that when you go out in public dressed like this, very interesting things happen to you, okay? Like, very interesting things happen. And so everything from the airport to the grocery store to the gas station. But I think I've got several favorite stories that I often share with audiences. And one of them has to do with being in a grocery store. So I mentioned to you that I'm from Washington State, and I served all 
also for eight years, we have a mission in Ballard at St. Alphonsus Parish in Ballard. So if you go to church there, you're going to meet our community. And I'm sure you know very well, we're in Oregon here, but as you know, the state religion in Washington is recycling, okay? So don't mix up the glass and plastic, it goes straight to hell, okay? So they're very, very serious about that. So I'm at the grocery store, and I'm in the produce section, and in Washington State, people don't see habited religious very often. It's kind of almost like you're an endangered species. I've had people come and pet me, I'm not joking, like, (laughs) they're just amazed. And so I was at the grocery store, and I had this experience where I could see somebody staring at me, you know, those moments where you feel somebody staring at you, and I could see this man approaching me very quickly, almost like leaping like a gazelle in the Song of Songs, you know, and I'm like, lettuce in hand going, this is about to be a very interesting encounter. I don't know what's about to happen, but something's about to happen. And so this man rushes over to me, and he stops right in front of me, and he looks at me, and he says, are you a nun? (laughs) And I said, lettuce in hand, I said, yes, yes, I am. And he said, wow, they still make nuns? I said, yes, sir, they, they do. They still make nuns <laughs> to this day, you know, exhibit A. And he looked at me and he just, something so beautiful came over him because he said, you know what, when I was a little boy, I had nuns as teachers in school. And he started telling me about Sister Patricia in his third grade class. And he's like, yeah, she smacked me with a ruler. He's like, Sister, I deserved it every time. Let me tell you, he's like, I totally deserved it. But he kept talking about the sisters and what they meant to him. And you could just see this beautiful, just radiance come out of him. And he looked at me, and he kind of recounted his story, and it was just beautiful to behold this man lost in a memory of something so joyful. And then he looked at me, and he said, Sister, I love them. I love them very much. And he said, Thank you. And he walked away. And I think sometimes, you know, we have moments in our lives where we are signposts to one another, where we kind of take stock and we kind of think about things. And that's one thing that Advent does. Advent is a signpost. It's a new year that causes us to kind of stop and ask ourselves, what's happening in our life right now? Because isn't it easy? I know for myself, isn't it easy to go through the motions of life? And you say to yourself, oh my gosh, Christmas is here again. Wasn't it just Christmas? Like, how did that happen? Life goes by so quickly. And so what the church does in her wisdom is she gives us these seasons so we stop and we prepare so we can look into the depths of our soul and say, what's happening What's happening? What's, what, what's growing in the soil of my soul? Or as the venerable Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you, <laughs> right? Like, how is life working for you right now? And I think if, for a lot of us, if we were be quite honest, we'd say it's not working too well. And I don't know what to do about it. One of the beautiful things, I'm going to quote a lot of different um, sources this over the last, next couple days, but if you're looking for a good Advent book, I would highly recommend this by a Franciscan, a dis, dis, um, discalced Carmel, sorry, Carmelite sister named Mother Mary Francis, and the title of the book is Come Lord Jesus. It's absolutely beautiful. And she says this, she talks about the path of Advent, and she says, as we come from the glory of the splendor, the gorgeousness of the solemnity of Christ the King, and enter through a very low door under a very humble lintel into Advent, we recognize with wonder that it is the same king who is coming in very lowly form. So too, each of our lives is one mystery. So just a week ago, we celebrated Christ the King, this beautiful solemnity when we celebrate that Christ indeed will come again, and he will come in all his glory. But now on the first Sunday of Advent, we see that Christ in his humility, oh, he's so humble has completely emptied himself of all glory, and he comes to us in the form of a child, an infant. He goes from being very, very glorious and very, you know, captivatingly large to very, very small. And I love it like the humble lintel of the door because, you know, to get into a little house, if you've ever seen The Lord of the Rings, and you, you go to visit the Hobbit house, you have to get in very low. 
So in order to encounter Christ, to see Christ, you and I have to go very low because, see, Jesus comes very low. And it is no coincidence in this Advent that we're going to celebrate, and we're going to set up a manger scene. I don't know where you put yours in your church, but we all have one. We're going to set up a manger scene, and the manger scene is where Christ chooses to be born. That throughout history, God could have chosen to be born at any time and at any place, and he chooses. It is no coincidence at all that there is no room in the inn. It's not like they didn't get on a hot wire early enough, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was no coincidence at all. God chose to be born in a stable, in a very humble, lowly stable. In the northern hemisphere, we celebrate Christmas in the wintertime. It is cold. So let me ask you this. What do you find in a stable? (laughs) What's straw? What else? Animals? What else? Manger? What else? Dung? Yeah, some poop, right? Doesn't smell too nice. Does any woman want to have her child in a stable? I mean, ladies, like, anybody? Right? Would you feel really safe in a stable at night? A, a simple stable? Is it warm and cozy? <laughs> My friend, Sister Mary Paul, we were just talking about this on the way. She's like, it took me a long time to realize that, like, the manger scene is not like the Christmas cards, you know? That has, like, the fluffy lamb. She's like, lambs are gross. They're, all like, all wet and they smell, you know? Like, the fluffy lamb and the little cow and things like that. We have to understand that Jesus Christ chooses to be born in a stable with all these things happening, It's loud in there. It's chaotic. Like you said, there's animals, there's hay, there's bugs. I mean, it's a place that nobody would honestly say, I would love to have my child in a stable. And yet Jesus Christ chooses to be born there. And you know what that's a great analogy of? Our heart. (laughs) Because I guarantee you, if we're honest, we look inside our heart. And doesn't our heart at times look like a stable? There's some animals in there making some noise, you know. There's some, it's drafty, it's cold. Sometimes it's inhospitable, it's unwelcoming, it's not safe at times. Many times, you know, we have areas of unconfessed sin in our life. There's places of darkness, you know, it's not a place of brilliant light. And so we look into our own hearts and our own souls, and we see the reality that right there, Christ chooses to be born right in our hearts. That many times we're afraid of it. I look in my own soul, and I see my stable at times, and I see the different parts illumined at different times, and I'm afraid of it. I don't like that. But see, Jesus isn't. And so it's that very thing, my dear friends, the many times that we're most afraid of or the things that we shy away from, that is the very thing that Christ desires to heal in our life. Whether it's something in our past, something in our marriage, something with our children, something at work, whatever that is that God chooses to be born in these areas. Why? Because he brings light in the darkest parts. That we, yes, in the Northern Hemisphere, we celebrate Christmas. The December 21st, the winter solstice, is the shortest day of the year. And Jesus Christ comes in the darkest time on purpose. I believe, I can't, it was C.S. Lewis, I think, in Mere Christianity, when he says it's like Jesus, you know, God slips behind enemy lines. <laughs> and he lands as a baby. He's like, nobody will think of this, right? He comes as a child in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world. So vulnerable so innocent. You know, you look at um, how just how when Jesus comes that he entrusts himself to humanity, he entrusts himself to Mary and Joseph. That God, he would have died. He would have died had they not taken care of him. I mean, just this staggering reality of who God, this God's humility, how he shows us what it means to be human. And I was doing an eight-day silent retreat this summer and with a Jesuit priest, a wonderful young Jesuit priest, and we were doing a meditation on this very reality of the nativity of Jesus being born in a stable. And he said to me something I will never forget. He said, Sister Miriam, do you see how Christ is born so vulnerable and little? 
He said he's teaching us what it means to be human. Because Jesus Christ from birth to the death on the cross has no self-defense mechanisms. He has no self-righteousness. He has no self-justification. He doesn't have armor, the armor that we all wear at times to protect ourselves from pain. He is totally stripped naked and totally vulnerable. And he says, Jesus Christ teaches us what it means to be human. So welcome to Advent, right? That's exactly where we're going. If I can talk a little bit about what Advent is, because a lot of times we don't even know what it is. So it's a period of prayer, right, in preparation for Christmas, including four Sundays, which I found very interesting. The first near is the Feast of St. Andrew, November 30th, so our Advent's early this year. It is the beginning of the church's liturgical year, so it is a brand new year, and it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means a coming, an approach, and an arrival. So we are preparing to receive somebody. Somebody's coming. Christ is coming into our life. And it's not a passive coming, or we're not waiting passively. We are going to, as the colleague says, we're going to rush out to meet him. We're going to rush out to meet the one who's coming toward us. And so we know that anytime anybody's coming to our house, usually if the guest is important enough, we're going to clean the house. And we're going to make it suitable for their arrival because we care about them. Not because we have to. And sometimes in you know, we life we do that, well, you know, my mother-in-law is coming, so I know that has to be clean because she always looks at that couch and she makes comments about that couch. That is not what we're talking about here, okay? <laughs> it's the reality of, of welcoming somebody that you love. And don't you want what is best for the person that you love? And it's these moments where God prepares our hearts because he's speaking to us of what it means to be human. I was, when I was talking to the youth group last night, I was um, mentioning this quote, another quote from C.S. Lewis from Your Christianity, and he says this. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So when we talk about what it means to be human, we know very well that no matter what we have in life, that whatever we receive in this life, we know that somehow it doesn't satisfy the depths of who we are. And I was asking them last night, I said, I bet last Christmas there are some things you wanted, like you had to have, and if you did not get them at Christmas, you were not going to school on Monday, thank you very much. I'm not going to school unless I get this for Christmas. And don't we all have things in life that we want? And you think, if I do not get this, my life will not continue on. If I don't get this the way I want it, it won't continue on. And then sometimes what happens is we get what we want, no matter what it is, a promotion, another degree, something, a new car, whatever it is. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong inherently in that. But then we get it, and it satisfies us for a while. But then after a while, don't we get hungry again, so to speak? And then we say, I, I need something else. It's not the iPhone 8. I need the iPhone 10. I need the iPhone XYZ, whatever, the huge one now you can barely fit in your pocket. I need that one, you know? I need this, I need this, and somehow we know that it does never satisfy us because we're made for something more. And then every now and then, and I tell this story very often, we have these moments that pierce the depths of our hearts that make us ache for eternity. And one of the strongest moments that I've ever had in this reality was with my mother, And my mom is my favorite person ever. And my mom and I, it's a huge thing for me to say that because my mother and I did not get along for a very long time. So I just want to say, mom and dad, if you have a troubled teenage daughter, there's hope, okay? So please don't, like, (laughs) there is hope. Let me just tell you that right now, right? So my parents, I, I, and I'll share my, or more of my story with you as our time unfolds together, but I had a very broken past and a lot of just trauma in my life, and so I reacted in very strong ways, and I was very um, inwardly angry, which came out in depression, so all kinds of things happening, but my mother and I hit heads a lot. We did not get along for a long time. And so um, something happened in our family that actually changed the course of our entire family, and it was one of those moments where we said to ourselves at the time, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to us. 
17 years ago, um, I was in Rome, Italy, just beginning my journey as a religious. I joined my religious community 20 years ago, so I guess it was probably 18 years ago now. I was in Rome, Italy, and I was upstairs at night, late at night, and I heard the phone ring. Have you ever noticed how when the phone rings late at night, it's usually never good news? I don't know what that is. But it was late at night, and I heard the phone ring, and I can't explain it to you, but I had this, like, a really sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. And a few minutes passed, and I thought, maybe it was nothing, until I heard a knock on the door of my room, and it was my superior. And she opened the door, and I could see her face. I remember it to this day. I could see her face because it was illumined by the streetlight outside of my, of my window, and I could see that she had tears in her eyes. And she said to me, Sister, your mom and dad are on the phone. I was like, oh, no. And I went downstairs, and I wasn't sure what I was about to face, but I knew that it wasn't good, and I picked up the phone, and it was my mom. And my mom said, um, honey, your dad went to the doctor today, and your dad's very sick. And I said, how sick is he? And she said, he has cancer, and it's terminal. My dad, on the day before Ash Wednesday, Fat Tuesday, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and we buried him on Ascension Thursday. So I left Rome, and I went home to take care of my dad with my mother, and we had hoped that the chemo would save him, and we were hoping for some kind of miracle that, that God would heal my dad in the way that I wanted God to heal my dad. But it became very clear as the journey went on that God was going to have a different plan for my father. And it was at that moment that our kind of lives began to change because a lot of secrets started to come out. And I'm a member of, I'm in recovery, I'm a recovering addict, and I'm a member of a 12-step group. And one of the best things I've ever heard in 12-step groups is this, we're only as sick as our secrets. We're only as sick as our secrets. And our family, maybe like yours, had a lot of secrets, right? Families have secrets. People have secrets. Churches have secrets, as we've seen they're coming out now, right? Nations have secrets. And when those secrets are kept hidden in the dark, they, are, they become very toxic. And our family had a lot of toxic secrets. And it was taking care of my father and realizing that my dad was about to go home to see God face to face, that this huge window of grace began to open and all of our secrets came out. And it was in that telling of the story of things that happened, things that were rectified, things that needed to be apologized for, my mother and I had a very huge healing in our relationship. And she and I were there the night that God took my dad home to heaven. And something happened at that moment, and she and I began to have conversations even long after his death, and to this day we still do, that a very big healing took place in our relationship. And so I go home to visit my mom um, every summer for two weeks, and we usually go to the beach for a couple days. So we go to, like, the Oregon coast. A lot of times we go here, we go to Seaside or something like that, you know. And, and so a few years ago we were at the beach, and um, I live in, like I said, Corpus Christi, Texas now, where it was 80 degrees a couple weeks ago. It is like 500 degrees in the summer, okay, and the water there is so hot. But here, as we know, in August it's like 55 degrees and raining because it's Oregon and Washington, because why not? Okay, so we went to the beach that day, and we, were, we went to Mass. We we're going to go walk on the beach, but we couldn't. It was raining. So we went upstairs, and I had this condo that overlooked the ocean there on the beach. And the first thing I did, we went upstairs, and I opened this huge picture window. And, you know, when you open the window, you can automatically just hear the waves crashing onto the shore. And, you know, when rain first moves in, you can smell it. So we're sitting there looking out the window, and the waves are crashing onto the shore. We're watching the beach, and we're smelling the rain. And we both had these huge cups of coffee, which every Catholic knows is the eighth sacrament. And so we're sitting there by the window... And I had this moment, and I know you've had it too, where you say to yourself, I wish time would stop right here. I wish it would stop. And I wish this beauty, I wish this intimacy, I wish this joy, I wish this moment would never end. 
I wish it would never end. And I really believe it's those moments that pierce us so deeply to the core that we know that this earth is not our home, that we know that there's something more to this, that it makes us, that's what Pope Benedict says, what beauty, true beauty ultimately does is it breaks our heart open for home, for heaven. That's why when you see something incredibly beautiful, what's like a sword that goes into your soul and you just, it makes you ache. And those moments that we say, man, I just wish time would stop right here because we know that there's something that we want to hold on to that's transcendent. And this is not a theological term, but I call them appetizers to the main entree. (laughs) Because that's what heaven is. Heaven is the ultimate consummation, the ultimate union of the one who loves us and the one that we've been looking for the whole time. In a moment that gets better and better and better, in a moment that never ends. That's why we ache for it. This is why you want your marriages to be happy, why you want your families to be happy. All of us, St. Augustine says, absolutely all of us want to be happy. All of us do. And every now and then we have those moments that just kind of pierce the boundaries of time and call us into eternity. Because that's what God is doing in our life, my dear friends. He's speaking truth into our lives. One of my graduate school professors used to repeat this catechism quote over and over and over again. It's catechism number one, and it says this. God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, no other reason than that, and a plan of sheer goodness freely created man to share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man, and he calls man to seek him, to love him, and to serve him in return. That for no other reason, God created you for no other reason, absolutely no other reason than for you to share in his own beautiful life. He's so just incredibly good, just so beautiful. It's one of the reasons why we love art and beauty and creativity. Dr. Peter Kreif says, we're artists because God is. There's something about it that just brings us into this, the throne room of his heart, and that's what he desires to do. He has no desire to manipulate you, to make you do something you don't want to do, to talk you into something that you're not interested in. His only desire in creating you so is that, was so that one day you would share in his own beautiful life. And so for this reason, I love this, he's so kind. For this reason, he's drawing close to you right now. Right now, in every time and in every place, God is drawing close. Like, he's the initiator of the gift. Any desire that we have for God, is a, just, it's all it is is a response because he's the bridegroom, so to speak. He's the one who initiates. He's the creator, and he's calling, and he's calling, and he's calling. So our response to love him is just that. It's a response. I think you and I, at times, you know, we have people in our life, and, and you know, the gift, greatest gift that God ever gave us, which I think is a huge risk, is free will, <laughs> And many times we want people to do what we want them to do, don't we? You know, pack your bags, people going on a guilt trip. You know, something like that where we're just trying to get people to do what we want them to do. God is the only person who will never, ever violate your free will, ever. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says this. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who opens to me, I will come in and have supper with them. I will come in and dine with them. And there's a very beautiful portrait. There's many portraits of that image, right, of Jesus knocking. It's probably at grandmother's house, right, above her plastic-covered couch. And so it's like Jesus knocking on the door. And if you look very closely at the door, you will see that there is no door handle on the outside, which means the door can only be opened from within. It is symbolic of the fact that God will never come into your life and kick the door open to your heart. He's such a gentleman, so kind. And he stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks and he waits. And if you can only open the door this much, 
he will come in and he respects that and he calls you and he's still drawing close to you. And if you can open the door and our lives just become more incredibly beautiful. But I tell you this, if you're at a place in your life where you just cannot open the door to him, he never leaves. Never. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to walk away from you saying, well, this one's hopeless. Never. Never. Just so patient and so kind, like the way that God loves us is just so patient and so kind. Because he's always speaking to us, right, of what it means to be human. He's always trying to teach us. If I could talk a little bit about what that is, because when we talk about Advent and we talk about Christ, we have to understand what it means to be human. So if you look at the back of your catechism and the glossary, you'll see a definition of the human person. And here's some of the characteristics of what it means to be human. That the human person, the human individual made in the image of God, right, to able to know and to love not, this is so great, not something, but someone, a person, a unity of spirit and matter, soul and body, capable of knowledge of self-possession and freedom, who can enter into communion with other persons and with God. So you and I, and in the image of God, that we're able to know and to love, we have an intellect and a will, and our life has been able to made to be able to pour forth as gift into others. The Christ is pouring himself out for us as a gift. That's why our lives make sense when we give ourselves as a gift which is why ultimately we'll never be happy being selfish. We think it protects us at times, but all it does is it truncates what it means to be human because our lives are called to be poured out as gift for one another. That we have the ability of self-possession of a free will that I can choose. I can choose to give myself. I can choose to say no. We're sitting here tonight because a teenage girl 2,000 years ago said yes. She gave her fiat. She could have said no. Just some of the saints have written about that. Like what if Mary would have said no? Because she had a free will, and she could have. And did you know what? God would have respected that. He would have respected that decision. Like he respects our decisions as well. Every yes, every, every no, he respects that decision. And does he have a plan for us, a way he likes us, in a sense, a way he's calling us better than likes, a way he's calling us to live because he knows what's going to make us happy, what's going to make us to be fully alive? Oh, yes, you better believe it. And part of that reality is communion and relationship that we are conceived in a family, we're raised in a family, we're here together as a family. We need one another. To be human means to be in communion and relationship. I was telling the teens last night, I'm so glad that God does not FaceTime us. Can I just say that right now? I'm so glad he doesn't. Because he comes as a person. And just how beautiful Jesus is. He comes as a man, he comes as a baby, he grows up like anybody else. You know, he, and he comes like when we see him in a public ministry, he's always just inserting himself into people's lives. And people's lives are messy. And he touches lepers, and he raises people from the dead. One of my favorite stories is where he sees the widow whose son has died. And for a widow already, her social standing in Jewish culture is at the very, very bottom. Many times her only livelihood is her son. And this woman, her son has died. And she's totally alone. If you've ever had an experience in your life where you feel totally alone, and of all the people that Christ could have ministered to that day, there's something about that woman that catches his attention. And there's all these people, this funeral procession. Everybody knows this is the tragic, tragic thing. And Jesus, I just love it. He goes right up to her. He sees her weeping, and he goes right up to her. He tells her, no, not weep. And he places his hand. I mean, just he's touching people. Like, people, dead people are unclean, and he, does, he, takes on their un- he takes our sin on and our uncleanliness, and he redeems us, and he puts his hand on the funeral, on the coffin, and he raises the young man from the dead. The man begins to sit up and speak. The people are just overwhelmed. I mean, could you imagine? 
If you went to mass here, a funeral mass here, and Father put his hand on the coffin and the person sat up, we're like, what? And he restores relationships because he's not just physically healing people. Jesus will always restore us into relationship, back into relationship. The lepers, they're out of relationship. They're ostracized. They're so far out of relationship, they actually have to stand outside the city gates and they have to shout out, unclean. Could you imagine how painful that would be as a human person? Nobody touches you. Nobody looks at you. I remember watching this documentary a few years ago about some people living in maximum security prisons. And what is the worst penalty, do you know, if you're already in maximum security prison, what is the worst penalty they can inflict upon you? Solitary confinement. Where for 23 hours a day, we can't even imagine this, 23 hours a day, you are by yourself. In a padded room, you have a toilet in the corner, a drain in the middle. You have a slot underneath your door where three times a day people will come and they will shove a tray of food underneath. They will watch you just to make sure you're still alive, but, no, but nobody looks at you. Nobody touches you. Nobody even acknowledges that you're a person. And I remember they had this one kid, and he was probably like 23 years old, just involved in horrendous, horrendous crimes, sentenced to maximum security prison. The man will never get out. Young man will never get out. And now he's already, he's causing so, much pro- so many problems in a maximum security prison, he's in solitary confinement. He'd been there for a while. And just the camera, the guy was talking to him, and the kid, this kid was so angry. You, you could just feel his anger just coming out, just how angry he was. And like, nobody even looks at me. He's like, you're not even a person. Just the anger coming out of him, just somebody who's so incredibly, incredibly broken, so isolated. And that's what Jesus does in our life. He comes to bring us out of isolation. Because, you know, on the flip side, those moments where we say, I wish this moment would never end, all of us in our life, we have them. They're the sorrowful mysteries of our life where we say, man, I have moments not just that I wish would never end. I have moments where I say, I wish this would have never happened. And I'd be willing to bet those memories have to do with isolation, with death, with divorce, with betrayal, with sin, with addiction, with broken promises, with being unwanted. I was telling the teens last night that I met a woman at a conference who was 60 years old. And she, t- she told me the story that when she was five years old, her parents, you talk about brokenness, and I don't know, this, obviously mom and dad are incredibly broken, but her parents come up to her when she was five years old, and they looked at her and they said, we wanted a boy, but we got you. Right? And they explained to her at five years old that they had named her a, boy, a girl's version of a boy's name on purpose. And they gave her boy clothes and boy toys, and they treated her like a boy. And her entire life, oh, it breaks my heart for her, her entire life she hated being a girl because she hated her, her beautiful feminine heart and her body and just the way her body was and her emotions. Like she hated that part of her because she thought that God had played some cruel joke on her. And she said, now at 60 years old, it's only just now that I'm understanding how beautiful it is to be a woman. Why? Because people are loving her in relationship and they're bringing the love of Christ to her because that's how it works. And so we see even with Christ, like these beautiful areas of relationship that Jesus doesn't live outside of relationship. I mean, God's a family. Um, this is a very famous painting that you might already have on your Christmas cards, but it's a very famous French painter named Bouguereau. And this is a, a painting called Song of the Angels. And can I just point out a couple things to you as you kind of look at it? Because I love it. And it's, people say that it was actually probably his version of the flight to Egypt when Mary and Joseph had to go to Egypt. And they took a little break by the roadside. <laughs> So Jesus could take a nap. And can I just say, first of all, I love how fat he is. Just look how fat. <laughs> just so fat. I mean, it's wonderful, you know. 
And he, you just see him gently resting upon the heart of Mary, just asleep, naked little baby, fat little baby laying on his mom's heart, not a care in the world, totally asleep. And if you look very closely at the angels, don't, you, don't, they, don't they look so reverent in how they're playing? It's like they're singing him a lullaby. They're, praying, they're like playing Jesus a lullaby, and you can tell that they're playing instruments, but it's like they don't want to wake him. So they're very, being very attentive, like we are to Jesus. They're very attentive, so they're serenading him, but they're not causing him to awaken. I love here that Mary obviously is very young, and she's probably tired as well. But one of my favorite parts about this entire painting is that even though it's a very beautiful painting and kind of a romantic painting, my favorite thing about it is actually you can see Mary's feet. Just like a normal person. You can see her feet. How many of us, if we were very honest, and I know this is something on my desire too, how many of us would like to spend Advent right here? (laughs) Asleep. And not because he doesn't have problems coming up, because there's about to be a lot of problems about to happen. But even in the midst of that, because Christ knows who he is, so he's always teaching us who we are, because sometimes we worry because we forget who we are, but he's teaching us how to rest. And that's what Mary does. Mary, this beautiful woman, uh, this beautiful, beautiful woman who in her own heart receives each one of us. She receives you and she receives me. And in that relationship, when we have relationships that are healthy like that, that we can go to, what happens is that it builds trust. Because this is what God is doing in our life. Because on Wednesday, we're going to talk about hope. But before we can talk about hope, we have to talk about trust. Because see, it's going to be a a nature. Because you're not going to hope in something you can't trust in. So if we talk about trust, can we trust God, right? God asks us to trust him. If we talk about like what trust is, okay, here's the definition of trust. So if you look at the dictionary, you're going to find this. That trust is the reliance on the integrity, the strength, the ability, the surety of a person or a thing. It's confidence in that person. And can I say the word confidence is from the word confide, which means with faith, right? So I have confidence. I'm having faith. I'm putting faith in you. It's confidence, a reliance on someone, So one has confidence in people as persons, trusts them to be faithful to their commitments and hopes to obtain from them what they promise. Applied to God, this is excellent. Applied to God, trust is a form of hope. So when God is asking us to trust him, he's asking us to rely upon him. And we are always, my dear friends, psychologically evaluating people to see if they're trustworthy or not. And many times in life, we have people that are and we have people that are not. Or maybe we have relationships that are very, very important in life and something very tragic has happened. A bad decision was made or something very, very bad happened and that trust has been severed. And there's a lot of work that has to go back into rebuilding trust because it's really a disposition. When I trust you, I'm going to rely upon you. I'm going to entrust myself to you in the way that Christ is entrusting himself to Mary right here. This is a posture of trust. Because we won't rely upon somebody that we don't trust. We'll always, be, we'll always reserve ourselves a little bit. We won't allow ourselves to do that. We'll always keep ourselves at a distance. And so that's what we do with God a lot of times. We wonder, can God be trusted? Is he trustworthy? And that is the lie that Satan actually speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden. And I guarantee you he's spoken it to you many times today already because that's his favorite story, is that God is to be held in suspicion and he's not trustworthy it's very interesting, and when you talk about what it means to be human, that being a human being, and we're going to pick up on this tomorrow and go deeper tomorrow, that we have an order to us, right? We have this order that God knows when we live out this order the way he's calling us to, that our lives are going to have a vibrance and a brilliance. So we know that when we worship God, when my life is ordered toward God, then I can love you appropriately. 
But if my life is out of order, if my, my, my life is disintegrated, I'm going to have a hard time loving rightly because my life is going to be shattered. And what Jesus always does is he always brings order out of chaos. If you go to Mass Christmas Day, you're going to hear the prologue of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word, the original word is the word logos, which indeed means word. But it also means order, it means reason. One of the things I love about being Christian, that I love about being Catholic, is that it's actually rational. It makes sense, because God is ordered, God is rational. There is nothing in our faith that you will ever be asked to believe that is against your reason. It might be supra, it's above it at times, and it calls us to go beyond ourselves, but it is never contra, and I love that. It's totally rational. And so God is calling us in this order of how to live, and you see Adam and Eve living in this order in the garden, and I love in the book of Genesis, it's so beautiful, it says they walked, I can't even imagine that they walked with God in the breezy time of the day. And their intellects were ordered, and their wills were ordered, and their passions were ordered, their emotions, they were totally ordered, and their lives were glorious. Um, some people say that they would have had to almost live like in four dimensions. The grace coming off of them would have been so brilliant, they would have had to live like in four dimensions. It's something that we can't even fathom because we live in such a, such a small manner. And then what happens, Satan comes in and he tells, he starts to tell them lives, he begins with Eve. And then what happens, he speaks this lie that God is not trustworthy. Did, did, God, did God really say that you couldn't eat of any trees in the garden? Which is already a twisting of what God said, because God said, what, you can, eat all the, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, except for one. I was um, telling a group one time that I was at an a art museum in Atlanta, Georgia, and that picture of the Garden of Eden in the middle was a peach tree, right? Because they're Georgians, so it wasn't an apple tree. I'm like, <laughs> of course, you know. <laughs> but see, he's already twisting the words, and what happens, Eve enters into dialogue with Satan, which we never do that, and she enters into a dialogue with him, and she says, well, it wasn't just all of them, it was just one of them, but we can't even touch it lest we die. So she's adding words that God never said. And Satan sees that hole in the foundation of her soul like he sees it in ours and he just goes, oh, he just goes right for her. And then he says this, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, oh, no, 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 you won't die. <laughs> God knows that when you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him. And what he's saying is God doesn't want you to be like him, he's holding out on you. So you better grasp and seize what you can get while you can get it because God will never give it to you. He's not good. And nobody knows how it even happened that she would go ahead. And I mean, she sees the fruit. It's pleasing to the eye, right? You see all the ways that we're, to we're, to we're pulled into sin out of the temptation, the cover of good, which is what Satan does. And she grabs for it. She takes it like you and I do all the time. She takes the fruit and eats it and gives it to her husband. And their lives shatter, shatter. Their intellects are, will their, their intellects are weakened. Their wills are, you know, they're dark and they're weakened. They're totally shattered. Their emotions are out of order. They become at odds with God. God is not at odds with you and I. They become at odds with him. They begin to suspect him. They begin to suspect each other. Their orders out of creation is disordered. And so at that moment, when this happens, the first thing they do is so great. The first thing they do that we often do is the first thing they do is that they hide. They hide from God. Um... When I was in Seattle, I worked at a daycare for many years, and um, I spent a lot of hours putting Barbie heads back on the Barbie dolls. Can I just say that? Like, that was, I have a degree in college, y'all. That's what I did. So I'm putting Barbie heads, like, I mean, I'm putting, it spends a lot of time to put the right head on the right doll, okay? So I'm, like, looking for all the corpses that are headless, and so I'm putting all the heads back on, putting all the Barbies over here, you know, I'm setting up the whole house, 
and this is like 2.55, at 3.15, the room is littered with heads of Barbies, like all over, right? And all the Barbies' heads are, I've, I've turned for a second, all the Barbies' heads are now ripped off, they're all over the room, and there's no children to be found anywhere. They're gone. And I pull one aside, I'm like, what happened here? What's going on? I don't know, sister, I don't know what happened. I'm like, that's kind of funny, because I just spent 20 minutes like putting their heads all back on, and you guys were over there, but now the heads are off, so what happened? I have no idea what happened. I'm like, that's very interesting. What an interesting story, right? And this is what happens in the garden is because Adam and Eve hide from God and God knows exactly what happened. And I love the question that he asks them because I'm going to ask you the same question. He says, where are you? Where are you? What a great question. God knows exactly where they are. And Adam comes out and he says, oh, well, you know that woman that you put here with me? Uh, yeah, we had some fruit from the tree. And then you just hear the cry of God's heart, and he says, you, you've eaten from the tree, haven't you? Like, I knew this would happen. And you see his heart for them, but his first question is, where are you? If I were to ask you that tonight, where would you find yourself? Where are you? I know you're physically here, but where are you? Where are you in your relationship with God? Where are you in the area of communion and intimacy? Where are you as a human person? Where are you as a member of your family with your spouse? Where, where are you? Because see, God's never lost. I'm lost a lot of times. I'm like, I don't even know where I am, Lord. Could you find me? Because I have no idea. But he's not. And he comes into our life to speak that reality, right? To speak this reality of trust. Because what he's after is Intimacy. This is a beautiful screenshot from the movie The Nativity Story, and obviously this is um, Mary and Joseph, and I I love this particular rendition of of Mary and Joseph because they're young and they love each other, and just such a beautiful story, and you see see the gaze between the two of them. And I want to talk a bit about intimacy because this is what God is after in our life because to have relationships is to be intimate with one another. And I was given a book, a wonderful book uh, called Friendship in the Lord about how to be a friend, how to be a real friend to somebody. And it changed my whole life on how I view other people and how I could be a friend to them. But the Dominican priest that wrote this book talked about intimacy extensively and about being home. And he says this. He says, the need to be known is the need for intimacy. Intimacy means, means being fully at home with someone. Home is not a place. It is where I am fully known and loved and received just as I am. It is where I am free to be completely myself without putting on acts to win another's approval. Only in the presence of my family and my true friends am I at home. Only trusted love can give such intimacy. Only trusted love can give such intimacy. Don't we love those stories, and we're going to pick up, I'm going to pick this up later on, I'm going to pick this up on Wednesday, but don't we love the stories where you go to wedding anniversaries of people that have been married, say, 50 years, and they have a mass, and they renew their vows at 50 years, and then they have a big dinner afterward, and, you know, everybody's sitting around, and the couple gets up, and they thank everybody for coming, you know, and they say that the groom, you know, turns, and he looks at his wife, his bride of 50 years, and he says, I didn't think she could get any more beautiful than on the day I married her but she's more beautiful now than I could ever imagine. And I love this woman. She's the mother of my children. She's a grandmother. She's a wonderful woman. And I can honestly say that in all the ups and downs we've had for 50 years, I love her now more than I ever thought was possible. And, you know, she usually turns to her groom and she says, 
I picked up a lot of dirty socks over the last 50 years. <laughs> you know? But I love this man. I love him. And yeah, we had some hard years. Not forget about hard times. We had some hard years. And there were times I didn't think we were going to make it. But we did. And I love this man. He's a good man. And I love him now more than I ever thought possible. It is only, as Father Hindebush says in that book, it is only trusted love that can give such intimacy, trusted love. And this is what Jesus is inviting us to, and this is what he's showing us, because you know what, this is a really brilliant idea, because if God came, and saints say this all the time, if God came to earth as a king, he could demand your obedience. And he's sovereign, and he can, and he will one day, right? He can, but that is not his, the, heart, the heart of his desire. His desire is to come as somebody who's beloved, and it's so brilliant because who could resist a baby? Who could resist a baby? And he comes and he says to you, I have, no, I have no desire to manipulate you. I have no desire. All I want you to do is I want you to come, and to come into my heart, come and to live my own beautiful life. I want to heal you of your sin. I want to heal you of your addiction. I want to heal you of all the ways your life is disintegrated and disordered, where you're living isolated, where you have barriers in your marriage, there's things that you need to talk about, but you can't talk about it. I want to come and I want to heal these things because I want you to become fully alive. So when God is asking us to trust him, he's not a tyrant asking us to submit out of like a prisoner of war. I no longer call you slaves. I call you what? Friends. He says that on the night as all of his friends except for a couple will betray him. I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. So would you come, would you come with me? And this is what Advent is, my dear friends, it's an invitation. An invitation because, see, God is always after our hearts. Always, always, always. We think it's about the situation, and sometimes it is, but it is usually always, always after our hearts because God, that's where God dwells. He dwells in the depths of us. In our baptism, we're indelibly marked, indelibly marked, forever marked as God's sons and daughters. And there's nothing anybody can ever do or that I can do or anybody else can do to remove that mark, indelibly marked. When you're confirmed, you're indelibly marked again, marked in the Holy Spirit. Priests are indelibly marked again. These marks that, that change, their ontological changes, they change the reality of who we are. And so what God is doing, he's so gracious, so gracious, just revealing who he is. And he invites us, like Advent, to start over, to start over again and again and again and again. And that's okay, right? I want to show you a little video um, of a woman who's going to talk about an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. And there's a very famous story in, in Jeremiah about he goes down to see a potter who's working with clay, right? And she's going to tell you the story, but as she's telling you the story, I want you to notice especially two things. I want you to notice how her hands, as she works with the vessel, how she's working with the vessel, and I want you to notice the vessel itself, kind of how she does that as she tells you the story. So we're going to play that video. So God spoke to Jeremiah one day, and he said, go down to the potter's house, and I'm going to talk to you there. So Jeremiah said, so I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he brought a work on the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the potter's hands. And you know, sometimes that's how our lives feel. Something comes along in life and just totally messes up our life. I love the story of the potter and the clay. 
because he didn't stop there. As Jeremiah was watching the potter, so he made it again. I seemed good to the potter to make it. And then God began to speak to Jeremiah. And he said, Cannot I do this with you? For as clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hands, O house of Israel. God was speaking to an entire nation at that time. How they had wandered away and turned to idols and their world was falling apart. Yet God was saying to them, If you just turn over yourself to me, I can remake you again, just like the potter. If he was saying that to a whole nation, how much more could he say that to us as individuals? So let me ask you, could this clay ever fix itself? So why is it that we think that we can fix ourselves? Or that we have to fix ourselves or make things right before we come back to God? When in reality, we never really can fix ourselves, not really. And all God wants us to do is just turn the mess over to Him. Just turn it over to Him and so that He can put things back together. Because see, He's the potter. He's really good at that. Isn't that beautiful? Did you notice how gentle her hands were? Notice she wasn't punching the clay, or she wasn't ripping it apart. Did you notice how gentle, like she just gently guided the clay, and just how gentle her hands were as she formed the vessels. Did you notice that those were two totally different vessels? At the very beginning, it was like a small chalice. And it was such a great analogy because she says, doesn't it feel like that something comes along in our life and totally messes up our life, and she just crushes the chalice? And I think all of us in life have had those moments that have come along that feel crushing, don't they? And then she says, no, 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 God remakes us. And that's what he's telling, but God is telling Jeremiah, and so she begins again. And as she's speaking to us, she's like, as she's gently like kind of forming this clay, and she makes it from a small chalice into a huge, beautiful bowl. It's like if God can do this through an entire nation, speaking to the entire nation of Israel, can he not do it with us? No matter what has happened. We don't have to, as Bishop Barron was saying, worry about it, try to fix it, try to manipulate it, try to... Could we, this Advent, turn that, in a sense, that mess over to God and just, like, like her, really, have our hands open to see what God would do? Cooperating with him, asking him, walking him with him along the path when he's giving us promptings to cooperate with him to see what he wants to do in a certain situation because he's always announcing to us. He's always announcing. Last thing for you this evening. Um, this is a very famous painting of the Annunciation by um, Henry Oswald Tanner, who is the very first African-American painter to um, come to international acclaim. And this is a picture of the moment where the Archangel Gabriel appears to Mary and asks her the question. And it's very beautiful because um, Henry Tanner actually painted this. It was the first thing he did. He, he visited the Middle East, and he came back, and this was the very first painting that he painted And he painted Mary as a very unassuming peasant girl, really, in the clothes of the peasants that they wore in the 1800s in the Middle East. And you see it's a very kind of, it's a very humble room that she's in. I love even just the messiness of it. Like you talk about how God comes to bring order. Like you'll notice just the the rumples of her bed. The carpet has a big fold in it, you know. You can see her feet also, which is so great. You see her feet at the bottom. And you see her looking at the angel, and he has the angel as kind of the shaft of life, of light, 
Henry Oswald Tanner also put the Trinity in this painting, which I found very interesting. If you look in the room, there's three vessels right here. One, two, three. They represent the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So the Trinity is present there, and there's a light lit, right? And so the archangel comes to her, and he asks her a question, and he says the greeting that he greets her with is, Hail, hail, highly favored one. Hail, highly favored one, you who are full of grace. And grace, as we know, is is the, the free act of God where he brings us into his own beautiful life. It's his favor where he brings us into his own beautiful life. It is the very life of God. He's speaking to her as, Hail, highly favored one, you who are fully alive. And then he asks her a question. And heaven waits and earth waits for her response. So if I were to ask you right now in your life, where is God announcing to you? Where is he coming to you and asking you to go with him on a deeper journey? And maybe he's sending you literally a messenger. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger. That's their function. That's what they do. They deliver messages. And maybe he sent somebody in your life that is speaking to you. Maybe it's a prompting directly to the, from the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's brought upon by the season of Advent. But I guarantee you that for every single one of us in this room right now, myself included, God is asking us, he's inviting us to a deeper journey with him. And a lot of it has to do because God is very simple. He's so simple. It has to do with that one thing. Maybe it was the one thing you brought today. It's, it's the one thing in your heart. But what is it? And would would we be willing, and that's always an invitation, would we be willing to go with him there? And even if we're afraid, we can totally admit that, say, Lord, I know you're asking this of me, or I think you might be, and I'm afraid. Or, Lord, I really want to offer this to you, but I don't know how to do it. Or, Lord, I don't don't know what to do. That's okay. But see, like I said, he's always after our hearts, and this is what his love does for us, his proving time and time again. That's why reading the scriptures are so important. It's because God always keeps his promises. Dr. Scott Hahn has a beautiful book called The Father Who Keeps His Promises. God always keeps his promises. So he just invites. So if you don't mind, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of close this out with a little meditation. And I just would like to invite you, um, you can close your eyes if you want to, um, but I just ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each one of us right now. And I just want to invite you, my dear friends, into the stable with Mary and Joseph as Jesus is born. And that night it's very still and very quiet. And you can hear the animals making sounds. And you can smell the wet hay. And you feel the cold wind on your face as you stand there in awe of a Savior who has poured himself out for us, who comes so vulnerable and so innocent. And what is it like for you as you look at Mary and Joseph as they behold the child? What part of the stable do you relate to in your heart? Maybe it's the drafty, cold part. Maybe it's a part of where we have some unconfessed sin that smells. Maybe it's the darkness. Maybe it's the place where it doesn't feel safe. Maybe it's, it's just too loud or too chaotic for you. But what is the one part of the stable that you relate to most right now? And 
What does it feel like? Maybe it's scary. Maybe it's overwhelming. Maybe it's, I don't know, but what is that like for you? And Mary's going to look at you with such love and kindness. And as she looks at you, you see that she has picked up Jesus in her arms. And she's bringing him over to you. And as you stand there in the stable, she's going to ask you if you'd like to hold him. And if you would like to, she's going to place him in your arms right now. And if you'd rather not, she'll just stand right next to you and she's going to hold him for you. But I just want to invite you to look at Jesus as a baby. And what does it speak to the depths of your heart? What is he inviting you to this Advent? And as you imagine him there, as you picture him there, I just want to give you a chance to say to him whatever you want to. As he announces to you a new path, new graces, a new year, an invitation to a deeper relationship with him, what would you like to say in response? You can say whatever you want or you can say nothing. But is there something you'd like to say to him in response? Lord Jesus, we entrust our hearts to you. We entrust all all the parts of our hearts to you. We especially trust you that one part of the stable that we relate to most tonight. We just give that part to you. We give you our desire for Advent. We ask that you give us the courage, just give us the courage to say yes. We thank you for all the graces that you lavish upon us. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for loving us. And I pray that as we journey more closely with you this Advent season, this time of waiting, this time of of being poured out, of being emptied out, Lord, that we would allow ourselves to be filled with you. And we entrust our time together tonight as we pray glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady of Hope, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So tomorrow night we're going to go from here, and we're going to go into areas of restoration and forgiveness, and mercy, and healing. And I think there's a particular part of the night tomorrow night that you do not want to miss so you're more than welcome to please come back and bring whoever you'd like to bring 
and I will be praying for you. And I just want you to notice this, that God's going to minister to you in a very special way, even tonight as you go home, and tonight as you sleep, and tomorrow as you go throughout the day. So as the angel comes to announce to Mary, I just want you to be really aware of tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow, even if you might dream about it, who knows, but it's really beautiful, God ministers, God's going to announce something to you. So be on the lookout for messengers, (laughs) Because that's what God does. He loves to announce good news. The gospel is good news. It's the good news of salvation. So he's going to, tonight, throughout, as you sleep, and as you go through your day tomorrow, he's going to send some messengers your way. So be attentive, right? Because he loves you. So thank you so much for coming. And Brad's going to come up and give us some final announcements. So I hope to see you tomorrow night at 7 right here. Thank you.